The first text of the morning is taken from the prophecy of Jeremiah. I'll be reading from the 31st chapter, beginning with the 31st verse. So listen, will you, for the word of God, as it's proclaimed by God's servant, the prophet Jeremiah. Look, the days are coming, Yahweh declares, when I shall make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But not like the covenant I made with their ancestors the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, a covenant which they broke even though I was their master, Yahweh declares. No, this is the covenant I shall make with the house of Israel when those days have come, Yahweh declares. Within them, I shall plant my law, writing it on their hearts. Then I shall be their God and they will be my people. There will be no further need for everyone to teach neighbor or brother, saying, learn to know Yahweh. No, no. They will all know me, from the least to the greatest, Yahweh declares, since I shall forgive their guilt and never more call their sin to mind. And then we turn to Paul's letter to the Romans, the second chapter, beginning with the twelfth verse. Again, will you listen for God's word? All those who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And those under the law who have sinned will be judged by the law. For the ones that God will justify are not those who have heard the law, but those who have kept the law. So, when Gentiles, not having the law, still through their own innate sense, behave as the law commands, then even though they have no law, they are a law for themselves. They can demonstrate the effect of the law engraved on their hearts, to which their own conscience bears witness since they are aware of various considerations, some of which accuse them, while others provide them with a defense on the day when, according to the gospel that I preach, God, through Jesus Christ, judges all human secrets. Amen. First of all, let me say how grateful I am that uh, I have received this invitation from your pastor. (laughs) I uh, deeply appreciate any opportunity to preach because uh, I did it for so long, and I really do miss doing it a lot. But you know, there's something else that's happening today that uh, will, will eventually bring tears to my eyes, and I truly mean that. And that is that I get to stand with you as together we celebrate the sacrament of Holy Communion. Tears are coming already. Indeed, that is one of the most profoundly important privileges that I have as a pastor. So, when I came here, 
to start a new church in Carrollton, I, um, I didn't know anything about the Texas language. <laughs> it was truly foreign to me. But that's not the most important point. I would serve a body of people called the church who didn't understand my harsh Bostonian accent. So I had to do something about that, and I worked on it, and it went pretty well. Every once in a while I slip, but when I'm under stress, I can revert back to that harsh Bostonian accent in a moment. So it was several years ago, not many, Marty and I had spent a week in Boston with all of our family. All of our family lived there. And uh, we were on our way home. We were at Logan Airport getting ready to fly back home to Texas. We were sad. I was especially sad because I miss our family, and I particularly miss being with our five grandchildren, all our amazing children, Berkeley, Keziah, Michaela, Fletcher, and Rachel. So I was missing them. But everything was going as smoothly as it could possibly go at Logan Airport on a busy day until we came to security. I went through my ritual, my typical ritual. I took off everything that was metal, you know, the buckle in my belt, I took my belt off, my rings, my bracelet, pocket change, keys. You, you know the routine. I left my wallet in my pocket. It's not metal. It's not metal. <laughs> so we lined up, as everybody did, like cattle ready to be branded. And they sent me through the scanner, and I stood there and did my thing for seven seconds. I stepped out, and the person said, walk over and put your feet on those foot pads because we have to pat you down. Ah, oh, okay. So I did that dutifully. And this guy, who had an accent a lot like mine, I think he might have been raised in Revere. I do. He, he, he says to me, he says, you got a wallet in your pocket, don't you? I said, it's not metal. <laughs> and then, for all the world to hear over the microphone, he says, we need a repeat scan over here. And then he said something that I truly did not understand. He says, where's your property? I said, what? He says, where's your property? And I'm thinking, should I tell this guy I've got a house in Richardson, Texas? <laughs> that I've got a retirement plan with the United Methodist Board of Pensions and I got a little red sport car tucked away in the garage? I said, what are you saying? He says, where's your property? Where's your property? Where's your luggage? Is it over there or is it over there? Well, by that time, I'm pretty well fed up. And so the accent came back. I said, my luggage is over there on that conveyor belt. And then under his breath, he says, 
I don't know why people don't understand the word property. I held back because I wanted to yell at him, well, why didn't you just say luggage? Where's your luggage? It would solve your problem. (laughs) At that moment, I came to the realization that this guy who was just doing his job was not perfect. After a moment, a couple of minutes maybe, of self-righteousness and grandiosity, I came to the conclusion I wasn't all that perfect either. And I realized that for 42 years, I was an imperfect pastor serving a bunch of imperfect people. And that's the truth of it, isn't it? We are all imperfect. For all of those years serving people, I never met a single person, not one, who is perfect. We are not that way, are we? So, in fact, though, as imperfect as we may be, we are in covenant with God. And because we're in covenant with God, We are loved unconditionally, and we bear the impression of that love on our hearts and in our souls. I think that historically, the church has wasted far too much energy, far too much time focusing on the faults and the failings of people while giving too little time to our goodness and our sense of capability. The church, not this church, and I'm not exalting you, I mean it, not this church. Maybe though churches that you might have fled, the church, broadly speaking, could be more in keeping with the gospel, with the gospel of God as it is revealed through the prophecy of Jeremiah and certainly the gospel of Christ as it's revealed through the Apostle Paul, we could do better by accentuating what is right with human beings rather than bludgeoning each other with all that is wrong. When in the year 418, Bishop Augustine wrote about original sin. He was promoting the idea that every single one of us, because we are human and because we are a long line of humans that reach back to Adam, that we bear the scar of sinfulness passed on to every one of us since Adam. I have a problem with that. And I think that maybe some of you have a problem with that also. But here's the thing. The the founding parent of our, our faith is the Reverend John Wesley. And John Wesley, in his writings, he certainly does identify the belief that human beings are depraved from the beginning. But he added what I call the Methodist miracle. And that is, he wrote, that God provides us with prevenient grace. 
Now, he used the word preventing grace because grace would be seen as, as out in front of everything. No matter what we do, grace is out there before we do it. So that prevenient grace envelops us and envelops everything. So, yeah, we're imperfect. But we're imperfect in an atmosphere of sacredness. We're imperfect in an atmosphere of grace and goodness and love. So thank you, John Wesley, for giving us the opportunity to see the gospel truth. Now, we do have to quit. focusing on what is wrong with us. Now, I, one, I, I appreciate a whole lot about the Bible from start to finish, but what I heard from this reading out of Jeremiah is that, is that the church didn't invent grace. Grace existed because God existed. And grace is the nature of God. So, what we read from Jeremiah, I, I, I want to remind you of this phrase. I will, this is God speaking through Jeremiah. I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. It really does clarify it for me. Now, the text that we read gives voice to God as Jeremiah identifies a shift that took place among our ancient ancestors. Let, let me share a couple of observations here. And, and this is in the realm of evolutionary biblical theology. Uh, what I've discovered as I've spent so much time with the Bible is that concepts and ideas gradually evolved. And, and these concepts and ideas were refined over centuries, many centuries, when people of faith experience the right relationship that they had with God. And so as time went on, our understanding of God, our understanding of humanity, and our understanding of what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God became more and more refined. Now, having said that, let, let, let me share a couple of thoughts here. And we're going to do a little bit of Bible study. I can't help it. What I've, what I've come to believe, and I'm not the one who discovered this, I'm listening to biblical scholars now. What I've, I've come to believe is that the prophets themselves did not write those documents that we call prophecy. These people, these guys who were prophets, were pulpit pounders of the first order. They made known to whatever their audience might have been what they believed God wanted them to know. And they did that emphatically. They were not poets. They were not historians. They were prophets. And they made the word of God known through their prophecy. And, and I don't know that I'd want to be in a room alone with any one of them. That's who they were. 
the only reason why we remember the prophets is because of their effectiveness. There were probably other prophets who said a lot of stuff that nobody listened to, and they've been forgotten. But these prophets spoke and they were heard. All right. Hold on to that piece. The next piece consists of this. Someone, whoever they might have been, someone remembered what those prophets said because the covenant community that they were part of experienced trouble and pain and despair. And they asked the question, does anybody remember what the prophets said when the Babylonians dragged our ancestors out of Jerusalem? Yeah, somebody wrote about that. And they remembered, let's read it again. Maybe that can be helpful. And sure enough, it was. So what the prophets did is pronounce the truth as they understood it. It was effective. And then someone else remembered its effectiveness and said, you know, in our time of hopelessness, this prophet gave us hope. I'm going to write that down because sure enough, there'll be times in the future when we're going to need to hear that again. This is one of those times when we need to hear it again. You see? That's my understanding of how this happened. So the prophets today give us hope in the same way that the prophecy of the prophets gave hope to a despairing people. We can have hope today. So what's the hope that we can draw from Jeremiah today? Well, it's my opinion, if I have any idea where I am in this sermon, (laughs) it's my opinion that the prophet Jeremiah is saying something that is profoundly important for us today. So here's how I see it unfolding. It was a period when the people of Judaism understood that God was transcendent, that God was out there, out there. And because God was out there, then that meant that the people of faith would have to look out there or reach out there in order to bring God into their experience. Well, they stopped doing that. And so there was a disconnect between the covenant people, and God, and so the covenant then was fractured. But the people desperately needed to be in covenant with God. So what God said through Jeremiah is that, listen, we're going to change the way this works. God is saying, I'm not going to be just out there. I'm staying out there, but I'm not going to be out there alone. Rather, what I'm going to do is I'm going to inscribe my will on the hearts of every human being. I don't know anything about the physiology of that, okay? I am going to inscribe my will on the hearts of every human being what every single one of us holds in common is the faithful fact that God's will 
God's love, God's grace, God's goodness, God's guidance, God's counsel is inscribed on your heart, yours, 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 and all of yours and mine. That will never be erased. We can ignore it. But when we claim that as the gift that we all hold in common, we are bound together inseparably as imperfect (laughs) as we may be. So, I, I, um, I studied uh, the Bible in seminary. That, oh gosh, this, this is really strange. Um, I, I studied the Bible in seminary a, a whole lot. My degree is in biblical research. I spent a whole lot of time with the Old Testament and a whole lot of time with uh, Professor Harold Beck. He became my mentor. I took 12 courses with him exactly when I was uh, in seminary. And one of my favorite courses with Harold was the cultural backgrounds of the Old Testament. Uh, The text that we used was uh, a text entitled uh, Israel, uh, Its Life and Culture by Johannes Peterson. Long out of print, of course, as I am pretty much long out of print. In there, listen to this, this, this statement. I, I love it. Peterson says, When we look at the soul, we always see a community rising up behind it. You hear that? When we look at the soul, we always see a community rising up behind it. What it is, it is by virtue of others. It has sprung up from a covenant community which has filled it with its contents and from which it can never grow away. Do you realize what you have done (laughs) because of the fact that you are in covenant with God and with each other? Peterson is so right. When we look at the soul, when you look at your soul, when I look at my soul, we always see a community rising behind it. What it is, what we are, we are by virtue of others from which we can never grow away. Through Jeremiah, God informed a people who were afraid and in despair that God would guide them with hope toward a new day. That was their epiphany, you see. In his letter to the church of Rome, the Apostle Paul reminded the early Christians of that same truth and told them not only to look for the signs of God's presence in those who were Jews, it would be seen there for certain but also to look at, just watch, those who are Gentiles, those who have no attachment to the law, Torah. And what you will see is by their innate sense, 
you will see them behaving as if the love of God is engraved on their hearts. Those are my words, not his. You have revealed the godly, the sacred, the Holy Spirit. I'm talking to you, congregation, you, church, by living out God's will in the world. You have lived by the vow of your baptism to accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. You have saved the lives of sojourners fleeing wars and dictatorships. You have welcomed the stranger because you welcome everyone. You have raised children to know God and to know that they are sacred. You have held the hands of those who are preparing to make their journey to the other side of resurrection. You have fed the hungry. You have clothed the naked and visited those who can no longer visit us. You see, dear sisters and brothers in Christ, that's epiphany. That is epiphany. It's the harmonious beat of our hearts proclaiming that which is of God. When I was a child, I went to church. Every Sunday, our family went to church. We went to Mount Bellingham United Methodist Church in Chelsea, which is right on the edge of Boston. It's a very poor community. It's a rough community. Some would call it ghetto. But that's where I went to church. And the church I went to was made up entirely of Newfoundlanders. There was a strong community of Newfoundlanders in Chelsea. And they all went to Mount Bellingham United Methodist Church. My mom and dad are immigrants, were immigrants from Newfoundland. Everyone there was a Newfoundlander. Well... At Mount Bellingham, worship every Sunday, with a rare exception, one particular man came down the aisle and, and he sat on one of the front rows. Usually it was the second or the third row back. Nobody was in front of him at all. And he was always late every Sunday, no exception. And, and he, would, he would walk down, and, 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 and he, he was wearing a faded tuxedo shirt. He had a black bow tie on. He had tuxedo pants. And, and every Sunday, he looked frumpy. He, he was always frumpy. His distinguishing characteristic was that he would stand for the opening hymn, or he would come in during the opening hymn, and he would belt out the hymn as loud as he could, and always, 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 he was out of tune. He didn't have perfect pitch like all of you. And so the Newfoundlanders would just glare at him, disgusted. He was called Billy. No one knew his name. Newfoundlanders don't ask people their names. They, they are not welcoming people. 
Okay? So nobody, some people called him happy because of his incessant smile all the time. So we would go through the worship service. Every hymn he would sing out loud, just belting it out, totally off key. And at the end of the service, he was the first to leave before anyone got out. He was, he was down the aisle and out the door. Nobody ever talked with him. I was, uh, as a kid, I was, I, was, I was loved at that church. Bob, my brother, and I were loved. He would say the same thing. Every Sunday, I would be embraced by Aunt Susie, and she'd give me a big kiss and tell me how much she loved me, and I loved her. I loved her till the day she died. It was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. One of the other characteristics that are most memorable about Mount Bellingham United Methodist Church was that Every Sunday, my family would leave right away. My mom and dad didn't want to talk much. And, and as we went out, there was one particular pastor, Reverend Joe Stevenson. He was there for a long, long time, and, and I thought the world of him. He loved me, and I, I, I loved him. But every Sunday, as we left, he would hand me a peppermint lifesaver. And I thought that was just payoff for listening to his horrible sermons. But it worked, and it was great, and I, I loved it. I loved it, and I would look forward to that every, every Sunday. All right, so I was away for a long time. I was in the Army for three years and finished my undergraduate degree in Fort Worth. And when I went back to Boston to go to seminary, I became the youth minister at Mount Bellingham United Methodist Church, my home church, right? The pastor at that time asked me if I would preach on a Sunday morning. This would be the first time that I had, I had preached on a Sunday morning, and I was scared to death, of course. I, I, I went up to the chancel, and I sat in the chair looking out at the congregation, right, and Mr. Goss, the choir director, started to play the prelude, and in comes Billy. Coming down the aisle, he was a little older, but just as frumpy. And he came, and he, he, he sat down in the same pew. And I'm facing him now. We, we started the opening hymn. He stood up, and he started to belt that thing out. I couldn't believe it. It actually sounded worse when I faced him. It was really horrible, horrible. So I preached the sermon. It was a terrible sermon, absolutely terrible. But the people loved me so much, I knew they were going to say nice things. So it came to the end of the service, and I, went, I gave the benediction, went down the aisle out to the narthex to greet the people and to listen to their imaginary remarks of goodness and love, of course. And here comes Billy. Came down the aisle, first one to leave, same as always. And he comes up to me and he says, Good sermon, good sermon. And as I shook his hand, he pressed a roll of peppermint lifesavers 
into my palm. That was the blessing that he gave to the pastor every Sunday that the pastor passed on to me. In that man, as simple as he appeared to be, was the love of God, the grace of God, the goodness of God. And that man, even though we didn't really know his name, was a member of the covenant. This is Epiphany. We usually talk about shepherds coming down off the hill and peering into a manger to see the baby Jesus or magi coming from the east following a star where it's disclosed to them the nature of this Christ child or Jesus is brought into the temple where Simeon and Anna recognize the Messiah of God. Epiphany is broader still, wider still, more extravagant and wonderful. You are, you are the expression of epiphany. God has put on the heart or the soul of each and every one of us a gift like no other, the gift of grace. And it's for us not only to bear that gift, but to share that gift as we look carefully for the goodness in everyone. Amen.